Well, hi there, everybody. Sorry to interrupt your other podcasts that you're listening to, but a little uh, fun announcement to make here. Casey, in summertime, we'd like to get up to some antics. And those antics would involve getting a bunch of nerds together and doing what nerds do best, yelling at each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So we are going to do Nerd Debate live this year. <gasps> Nerd Debate 5 live. There we in go. Person. Boom. That yes. is the subtitle. We just came up with it. We will be doing this at the amazing Bullfinch Brew Pub here in Syracuse, New York. So find all the information that you need at our social media or at nightshiftradio.com. We've drank Bullfinch's beer before. Dave, the brewmaster at Bullfinch, makes amazing beers. Check out the amazing stuff that's happening in Bullfinch. You can go to bullfinchbrewpub.com. Come join us on Saturday, July the 29th at 730 and be sure to be ready to listen to a bunch of nerds <laughs> argue with each other. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave your podcast now. Goodbye. <laughs>Welcome to the fourth pillar of play, a Night Shift Radio production, where we support your adventure in tabletop game design by learning and doing right alongside you. Why, hi, Josh. Why, hello, Talon. It's so nice to be here with you again. I know, it seems like it's been a long time. It's been ages. So, for those of you at home, we're going to get right into it today. We're going to be going through a list of different things that we have prepped for our discussion, but we wanted to start out by recapping a little bit of what we talked about last time. In our last episode, we put down, uh, thanks to Josh and his creativity, a really cool uh, beginning seed yeah, of a world. Like the um, fertilizer. Exactly. We fertilized a seed <laughs> we of a world. A seed of a world. Um, we planted it. We packed some manure in there because yeah. um, we, we've got plenty of it between the two of us. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, so I took what you wrote and presented for our world, which for the time being, I think we're going to stick with calling Esterok. Yeah, we seem to like Esterok. Yep. We reserve the right to change it at any time. Yeah, as would any creators at home following along, coming up with their own worlds. Exactly. It's... It's yours. You do what you want. Change it when you need to. Um, but for now, we're going to take uh, the world of Estrock. And the other thing we talked about in your description, you described a um, a flood of right. something that, that wiped out a previous civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't have a name for that flood. Right. So I looked through some different things in mythology, and I found while in... while researching different basically i google searched magical liquids Mm -hmm. which is you know very deep thoughtful research and you'd have to be really careful i (laughs) i would i would probably do magical liquids with safe search on yeah (laughs) probably the only time i would (laughs) fair yeah fair However, I yeah. did not stumble into any unwanted search results in my in my quest. Fabulous. Um, I did find a reference and to... slightly disappointing. And, That's fine. And, yeah. Well, you can't win them all. No. I did find reference to a material called iliaster, which is from alchemy. You know, people yeah. sitting around trying to turn lead into gold and all that stuff. Right. Um, which is supposed to represent basically a god substance. This is a substance from which all other substances can derive. Okay. Which I thought thematically sort of worked yeah, with. That, that's, yeah, that's precisely what I had in mind. Exactly. It's our so. mystery box substance. So. so is this a thing alchemists believed that they could achieve that? I'm not sure if they could achieve... Because it would feel like if you had that, then the gold thing would be a cinch. Right. I don't know if this was something that you could achieve, or is this something you had to have to then do other things? Okay. But I have not spent a lot of time trying to. Wrap so it my must head have around. been the that liquid must have been at the end of the infomercial. It must. Yes. Like this is what you need to do. <laughs> Billy Mays comes on. And right. He's like. Right. Only today. Yeah. Um, totally. So the what was it again? It was called Iliaster. Okay. And I like I, the sound of it. I know, right? And especially it, assuming we stick with Asterok. Iliaster fits. Sure does. It, it has a similar timbre, 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 timber, 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 timber. Sounds like it. So after going through and discovering this Iliaster yeah. and deciding on using that, I spent 
exactly two minutes. I allowed myself two minutes to do this, okay. where I sort of working from memory, from what you has said at our last episode, I wrote an evocative text. I really feel like an evocative text, uh, something that really like grabs you with interest, is good for the creative process. So based on what you said in our last episode, I spent two minutes and I wrote what I consider to be an evocative text. A text that sort of captured the ideas that we were looking for, but didn't define too much. Uh, sort of like what I imagined would be the blurb on the back of a campaign setting. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, mine was originally I started writing it with a 30 second um, window of time in mind. So there were, okay, okay. So you, you fleshed it out now. So it's going to sound a little bit. And fancy. I, and I apologize for any liberties that I took that might have deviated from what you originally wrote, but I was working from memory. Okay. Should I do an announcer voice? I feel like you should. I feel, I feel like, like this should be, um, you know, it should double as the trailer if we need to cut it out. We should know, have some nice all the images. Epic with, music swelling the, in the like background. The, the partial animatic of the different creatures while this is playing it. Go ahead. <laughs> all right, you here do we whatever go. you do. <clears throat> Millennia ago, the world of Estrock was the crown jewel of every treasure hunter across the plains. Thousands of disparate peoples from a thousand worlds all traveled to these long, abandoned shores to hunt and gather the priceless remnants of Yliaster, a liquid of unparalleled power to any who possessed it. No one knew what had ruined the world of giants that once called Estorok home. No one could fathom what cataclysm had broken the Leviathan Towers and shattered the gargantuan causeways that spanned the world high above its untamed jungles and wilds. Travelers to Estorok were content to gather what Iliaster they could from this perilous world and return to their homes with riches and power. Until the sevenfold storm raged across the world, bringing with it death and chaos. After those seven days of wrack and ruin, the surviving visitors to Estorok discovered a new chapter in this mysterious world, for they found themselves trapped upon it. No magic could pierce the plain, and no ship could traverse the sky. A thousand people from a thousand worlds were trapped, and now had to face the reality of their new home. In the thousand years since, civilization has grown through Estorok, as people have built cities for themselves in the ruins of forgotten giant structures. People brave the dark jungles and wilderness of the surface in careful ventures as they slowly try to expand and forge a new home for themselves in a world full of hostile creatures and magic. New civilizations have arisen in those years, and clashing ideologies and cultures have found both uneasy alliances and bitter rivalries. Many people have come to see this world as their home, while others continue to search for the answers to this great mysteries of Estorok. What ruined the world of the giants? What force wrought the sevenfold storm? What is the nature of Iliaster, and how is it tied up with the fate of every living creature that is now forced to survive upon the rocks and memories of a world long shattered? And scene. <laughs> no, that's excellent. That's perfect. <laughs> so I thought it captured sort of what we were going for. No, absolutely. And... and it does sound like uh, the back cover of the book or even that forward chapter. Like, you know, when you, you get kind of that little blurby part of Eberron. With a splash page on the yeah. other side. Yeah, it's very, it's just like Some it. adventures in a jungle. It's just like it. Well, what it's supposed to be doing is like inviting you to, here's this. Here's the sandbox. And here's a couple of things you can play with in the sandbox. It's your and, call to adventure. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully also, I think it also evokes, the, the, there's, there's a ton of this sandbox to explore. This is only a piece. These are just some ideas. Right, like, you exactly. Know. We're leaving plenty of room for people to create their own right. adventures yeah. within this world. No, and it, it's excellent. Very good. Uh, thank you yeah. very much. Um, so we're going to be going with that as our base as we continue forward. But before we do that, Josh, yes, it's time for a random encounter. Is a random encounter a random encounter? What what is what is? I mean, I certainly know what it means in the D and D sense, in the DMing sense, but what does it mean here? Well, I have been trolling the news, looking at different articles and current events that might be of some relevance to people who design games. All right, and so I am just curious to get your thought on some of these. So, is this going to be a segment? This is a segment. This, this is my a idea for a segment. Yes, right. that works. So in a random encounter segment, one of us will present something newsworthy in the world of games or game design or just fantasy, whatever, 
in so much as it has or may have an effect on the design process. Okay. Just to kind of get your thoughts, pick your brain a little bit. All right. So our random encounter topic for today is AI-generated art. Oh. Right? Yeah. So this is something that's come up in the news a lot lately. Yeah, people are winning state fair art competitions. Exactly. People are winning state fair art competitions. Um, The newest Malzan novel... um, yeah, you There's showed some, me that. There was some controversy, right? I showed yeah. you this. The That they have a new book coming out, and the cover of said book is very clearly AI-generated. Yeah. So while I was doing some reading about this, there is some very distinct and impassioned points of view on this. Surprisingly. I've, I, <laughs> I've come across that, too. It, yeah. So when we were thinking of a monster... Yeah. I used an AI art generator just to prompt some ideas to stir my imagination. Yeah. What are your thoughts on people using AI art in published products for sale? Well, so I don't necessarily object to it. Okay. I, I see I see I see the place it holds uh in the world of necessity. Me I guess if you're going to do it, you have to be very upfront about it. And it's, uh, you know, you, you have to be honest and you have to be willing to weather that storm. If you've chosen to go with AI art, there's there's likely to be backlash. Right. Um, especially if you're a smaller or independent type person, I can see why you would do that. However, it's kind of still hard to justify when the number of people willing to do art for you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a, and it's a harder process. And I have seen... Some very impressive AI art, and I've seen people like the guy, whatever state fair it was, Illinois State Fair or whatever he won. Something like that. What the AI art produced was amazing, and his insistence was, well, yeah, and it took me a long time. I had to describe this, I guess, really hard. You know, I'm like, that's <laughs> I had problem. to describe this so hard. You know, I mean, because you've, you've used them, I've used them, and eventually you kind of get what you want. Um it does take a while, but it takes an, it takes a while, and it's it's only close enough. So mm-hmm. I guess I guess if you're going to go with AI, you're already kind of um, I guess you're kind of accepting a, a certain uh, lower level of, of output. Yeah. yeah. So on one hand, it's incredibly cost effective, and if yeah. from listening to everything that I've listened to about game design, one of the largest expenses with anybody producing or publishing a product Mm -hmm. is art costs they spend almost more on the art than the writing if not more um it's incredibly expensive especially look at a monster book Mm -hmm. where for every single page you've got to have some really cool evocative art pretty much and then as a reader for those ones in the monster manual that don't have an image you're kind of like yeah right you know it's a disappointment that there's i can't think of one off the top of my head but oh there's not a picture of it yeah anytime i've run into a description of a monster without a picture i will freely admit that i go I, yeah. Okay. You know. I mean, I have an imagination, but why do I have to use it? Can't you just right. give me give something? me a good starting point here? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I can see that point of view. Like, listen, I'm I'm a one guy, or we're just small, small team of creatives who are writers, and we have no budget, and we're trying to produce something to to sell to people to get started. I can see them. I can see the the allure. Of AI art. Right. But then at the same time, on the other hand, you are you are essentially depriving artists of jobs. You are 100%. Yep. Yeah. And you are... Well, okay, so what are your thoughts on this? The people who say that AI art is still capitalizing on the work of others. Because if you think about it, essentially it is. It's a computer algorithm that is basically cataloging visually other published works of art and then smashing them together to create something new. So they're synthesizing other works to make what it makes. It doesn't make anything original. It makes thousands of pieces of other art smashed together. So in that essence... Okay, so I I don't want to come down like I'm fully on the side of AI art here. Oh, I understand. However, I have seen... It's a nuanced position. I've known... I know a great many artists um, who their style... Also is a is a mashup of the parts of another artist's work. Okay, it very quickly inform. You know, if, if there's an artist that one artist enjoys, it very quickly informs their work. Mm-hmm. You know, 
oh, I like how he does eyes. I like how he does ears. I'm going to, you know, there, it, it, it bleeds over. That happens naturally. The real threat, I think, ultimately with AI is the same one I do for almost any technology, but it's usually an argument I make in favor of, uh, you know, switching to electric cars or, or, or something along those lines, which is the cell phone argument, right? When a cell phone first came out, we all have seen the jokes. It was a, it was a suitcase, right? It was this giant thing. And then I as it owned got, one. Yeah. And then as it got smaller, you know, it was, it was still bigger than a Game Boy. You know, they're smaller, smaller, you know, but they go, they get smaller. Technology gets better and better and better. And right now, AI can't compete with sitting down with a creative individual, describing what you want, saying what you want. It can't because no. it's not being utilized. And the technology is in its infancy and it already does. So the slippery slope is, could you potentially just cut out an artist? It could go there. Right. And, and it could be the iPhone in your pocket all of a sudden. Well, you know, for as much as, yes, I do think that the the manipulation of the prompts to get the art that you want right. does take skill. I don't know if I want to say talent, but I'll say it, it I think takes it takes skill patience. And patience yeah. and it takes some experience. And vocabulary. And vocabulary. Yeah. But I don't know if that holds up in measure, in equal measure to, say, someone who has honed an the artistry of drawing, paint, and or painting right. over many, many years. Yeah. I just don't think those two equate very strongly. The analogy for this would be like, I run a library and I have to teach students how to do um, searches. How to do an effective Google, Google search is a skill. It's something you have to yep. know how to do well. If you don't do it well, you don't get the results you need. So is learning how to... Google search and find what I want more effectively, the same as creating it myself from scratch? Probably not. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, the simple argument would be that you Google searching effectively doesn't take money out of anyone's pockets. This is true. You know, and that's really what it comes down to. But using AI art essentially does. It really does. I mean, in the long run, especially, I mean, when I look at something like uh, the D&D books are full of, you know, beautiful art. Mm -hmm. um, but I will always reference to, I have a bunch of Pathfinder books, even though I don't really play Pathfinder. I'm going to have one game on my slate. But the art in that is incredible. Right. There's so much art. I don't think they that. ever skimp on art. They do not. That really, there's a lot of things that Pathfinder are apart, but the art is amazing, mm -hmm. you know. And if, and that that's, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of employment. Right. It's you a know, lot of paychecks to cut. It's a lot of paychecks. Um, but I, as a viewer, prefer it. But some people like mashed potatoes. Some people like instant mashed potatoes. I feel personally attacked by well, that Well, it's statement. just because, yes, yeah, it was very... It was My just, wife also feels personally attacked by that statement <laughs> because we go back and forth on this. As I predict going the way of most of this segment, we don't have an answer, obviously. Yeah, it's just... But it is interesting to kind of just... It's just something being discussed, and it's interesting to contemplate. Yeah, it is. It is. Just kind of take a moment and take a lens and look at that. I don't see anything wrong with using AI art as an inspiration, and then if you move forward with an actual product, hiring an, an right. artist and showing them your reference work. Sort of like with, I'm sure that any writer might do their own sketches. I mean, Tolkien did his own sketches of yeah. Smaug on a mountain, and then it was handed off to an illustrator. Yeah. And then we just circled back around and started using his illustrations, because they weren't half bad. Yeah. Um, they had their own little, you know, je ne sais quoi. Yep. So I think that concludes our first, first random, random encounter, encounter. Yeah. segment. So now I want to bring us back to the shores of Estrock, our fledgling world, our little kernel of creativity that's sitting out there, yeah, just, you know, rotating in the ether. Yeah, somewhere. And I want to talk a little bit about our first monster. Now, we both read an article that we're going to yeah. kind of just briefly touch on that's going to inform the way we talk about this monster. Monsters are scary. Monsters are scary by Mike Mason. Now, Mike Mason is a, he's a writer for like Call of Cthulhu. Oh, okay. so this makes sense. Oh, um, you know, when I read it, I didn't know that. That makes a lot of it sense. It makes and a it's lot of sense. <laughs> a billion percent necessary if you're going to do a Call of Cthulhu game. I um, and I think it's a really good article. Yeah. So, do you want to? What were your thoughts on this? Do you want to? Do you want to summarize? Or do you want me to summarize? You, you summarize, but I mean, I have a, I have some thoughts. Okay. Yeah. So the basic gist of Mike Mason's articles is he talks about 
not the essential point of this is not to make your monsters boring they should be terrifying they should be frightening and you should be using all of the tools in your toolkit as a dungeon master to make your monsters frightening even if they're a monster that wouldn't normally be frightening so even if you're facing a goblin you should do something to make that goblin scary and that involves utilizing different kinds of sense vocabulary it involves creating and crafting a narrative that leads the players there. And he leans really heavily on one of my favorite things. He leans very heavily on mystery, on what's mm-hmm. unknown. You know, you don't know it's goblins. You know, you see corpses. You know, you see this on the wall. You hear this sound. You smell this. You can taste this in the air. And then you see bright little points of yellow light and pears circling around you. It's much more scary than saying five goblins jump out because there is a danger when you jump to something like five goblins jump out that players are like, oh, they're just goblins. Right. CR one half. Well, it's interesting because that brings me to my first thought as I was reading the thing. Probably my primary thought as I'm reading the entire thing. So again, um, we're going to come up with different terms that I'm going to assume people know, but I will still explain. And I don't know if it was ever his intention. I don't think he directly says it, but this really speaks in a lot of ways to metagaming. It sure does. You know, in a in a lot of ways. So for those who don't know what metagaming is, it's the it's when um, you allow your character to know what you know. We know a goblin is, as you just said, what did you say? Half, half. I CR? think it's CR half. Yeah. Right. You, you know that, but your characters don't. Um, and that's going to apply essentially with any monster that they face, right? right. They, they, they're not supposed to know about them. Um, at and, least not at first. <clears throat> right. As they gain experience. Well, that's the thing. You're generally going to come across a monster that is usually level appropriate. And so you shouldn't know about them. And, and the scariness and the unknownness should matter because when you're facing a goblin, if your DM is throwing a goblin at you, it's probably going to be a problem. Right. You don't use a, a goblin on a level 15. Right. You use a goblin on someone who's going to have a problem with a goblin. Mm-hmm. You know, um, probably coming from the idea that you're a farm farmer and you just picked up your sword or your pitchfork. You exactly. Know, and, you just graduated from Adventure Academy and now I'm out to make my way in the world. Ah, goblin. Yeah, and it's going to be scary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no matter, I'm sure there's real world analogs for it. You know, Absolutely. it's like you can train all you want. But now you're in it now, you know, and, and in the whole article pretty much talks, talks about remember that and remember that as a, as a storyteller, as a DM. And also, you know, uh, remember that as a player, you don't, you know, lean into it, <laughs> you know, let it. So I hadn't I, and that didn't click with me as much when I read this. But you saying that makes perfect sense. This does seem to be very much geared towards this is a tool that DMs can use to avoid players metagaming, because especially if you're playing with experienced players, sure, it's hard to surprise them. It's hard to. To present them, especially if you're using the standard, you know, your monster manual monsters, it can sometimes be hard to communicate the danger mm-hmm. when they know the monsters themselves so well. Right. And I, you know what I often use as a good example of challenge rating or at least leveling up? If you watch the first season of The Walking Dead, no, the second season, uh, one of the characters, Carol, loses her daughter to a walker, not a zombie. They're not zombies. They're all walkers. There's no Z word. Um, and Rick, the the hero who was still you know in the show at the time. Let me tell you something, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> so Rick basically uh, leaves her behind to get away from I think two zombies, walkers, walkers. Sorry, two walkers. I think he leaves her behind to get away from two walkers. A season later, they're clearing out an entire jail full of them. <laughs> but for a moment, that walker was the scariest thing possible, and that's kind of what he's talking about here is that right. yeah eventually a bunch of goblins are probably gonna be nothing for you but in that moment they're the one walker you're just you you don't have the tools you need you don't have the experience that you need right and i, I thought it was really interesting i i really liked how he um emphasized relying on the senses he emphasized relying on uh environment environment is so cool one of the things that i really like again I'm going to reference this a million times. I'm going to stop apologizing for it, however. Okay. One of the things Paul Hughes Hughes does in the Monstrous Menagerie for Level Up 5e is that for every monster, he also includes the signs of that monster, what you would encounter before you encounter the monster. There's a section where he talks about what you would know about the monster. There's a section where you would encounter, here's the signs and the environment preceding the monster. And that's brilliant because, again, he's bringing story back to the monsters. It's not just a stat block. It's not just a thing to check uh, a thing to tick off on your sheet as you go. 
I rolled a 17. That hits. Eight damage. Okay, next. 16 to hit. Four damage. We have... We're building in some narrative depth to each creature. And I like the way he does that. And I like to... I would like to... I would like to fully embrace that as we design our own things. Right. And the other thing that this article also brought to mind is it, it it's a big part of differentiating between you are playing a tabletop role-playing game versus a video game role-playing game because right. video games don't generally have that vibe that you that you know what he's describing in this article which I believe is going to be in the show notes. Right. It is. Well, in the show notes, I'm going to do a link to Cobalt Press's store. So this article is from the book, The Cobalt's Guide to Monsters, which okay. is... Oh, oh, right. Okay. Because Cobalt Press has a series of essay-based books. They have The Cobalt's Guide to World Building, to Game Design, to Monsters, and things like that. They're very great books. They're full of uh, industry professionals writing their essays. They're mm-hmm. very thoughtful and they're very well organized so i have a link in the show notes to the store where you can look at any of them but this particular essay is the first essay in the kobold's guide to monsters okay yeah but it it does also it is again i i think it's important to take that minute to to separate what we're playing against video games because because saying and you run into a goblin is the same as you're walking on the overworld map on final fantasy and all of a sudden the whole thing goes it spins and now you're in a random encounter and it's Mm -hmm. You know, it's the atmosphere that you can't get in other ways of gaming that this allows for. And, yeah. And And he's saying use it. Right. Use your atmosphere and use your monsters, even your cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. Use your monsters to tell a story. Yeah. You know, you essentially... Play with your medium. Exactly. You know, this is what you you have to create with. Do it. Yeah. Avoid your game falling into that boring, I rolled a 20, I hit 17 damage. Right, well, like the the you know, like yeah, the adventure league night where we're just clipping off. Well, the store closes in forty five minutes. We got to clear this yeah, exactly. dungeon and so, kill the uh, red wizard. Uh, uh, goblin roll, okay, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and the more you design your monsters, so I, I see this as affecting design from the point of view of the if you go into designing a monster with this in mind, mm-hmm. you go in going, all right, I'm going to design a monster that is scary. Even if they know what it is, what is preceding that monster? What is its lair like? What does it do that makes it scary? Yeah. Because a monster should be scary. I yeah. agree with this, with, with Mike Mason. The monster should be scary. Mm-hmm. Do you know what's scary, Josh? Um, I, that I missed the segue? What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is a, scary? It was almost another random encounter. It's not how centipedes are scary. They are. They're very disconcerting. I don't know if you... As, as I usually say when something actually frightens me, I could have done without that. <laughs> That's what I... I say that in that Supernatural episode where the kid looks out the window and the clown has followed her home. I just go, ooh, I, I could have done, done without, without that. that. Yeah. That's, That's great. Yeah. I'm going to share with you some of my research that I did this past week on how centipedes... I know, and you alluded to this gleefully, so I, I'm, this is, I'm ready. This is delightful. Yeah, so, because we just think they're icky. We just right? think they're icky. We just think yeah. they're gross, and we don't like it when we pick up a you know an old yeah, thing like from the basement just, and they go skittering around. They just make you go, yeah. right? Like that's exactly <laughs> what, yes. They're, that's they're, that's, that's the, the experience. full body shiver. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'm going to read to you some of my research that I have done on the house centipede. So, first of all, house centipedes have 15 sets of legs on average. I think they're undercounting. <laughs> 15 sets. So it was 30 plus legs. I don't. I still don't think that's enough. I'm fairly certain it's a thousand. They use these legs mm-hmm. to grapple and batter their prey. They prey on other insects like spiders, flies, ticks, things like that. A spider is an arachnid. They, they prey on other insects and arachnids like nice. spiders, flies. Good. Um, I'm saving you the tweet. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> they can see in the dark. All right. But they so use, can everything but Dragonborn. I know, right? They have so right there. I loved as I'm reading this. I was thinking in my head, oh, so it has dark vision. <laughs> really is. But it goes better than that because it can see in the dark. It has good eyesight, but they don't use their eyesight. They use their sense of smell and taste from their antenna. They have blind sight. Really? Yes. Oh. And the antenna also can sense vibration, so they technically have tremor sense. Interesting. Right? Yeah. They stay on the ground a lot of the time, but they can be on the walls and on the ceiling upside down. No problem. 
I'm, it's a problem. It's, it's a problem. I mean, maybe for not me. for them, but it's certainly, <laughs> I can see how that's a problem. So I love this. So they don't need to see. They can sneak around in the dark and they lasso things with their own limbs and then beat them with their own limbs. That's okay. That's just the beginning. I was going to say, is it? All right. Oh, isn't, no. that, isn't that enough? It doesn't. No, it, it keeps going. They have a venomous sting. They don't right. have. So what is the difference? When it bites you, it's um, it's it's not a. The sting is something separate from its mandibles, but it's by the same spot. I don't know if this is so. This it's is, technically like a stinger. It's like a stinger on its face, as that's opposed to lovely. mandibles yeah. with. Oh, I guess that's better. So it stings you with its face stingers, and then wow. that poisons you if you're a fly or an arachnid spider. It poisons you. And then they eat you with their mouth, which is right so next is to it the stingers. A, is it a paralytic? The, I couldn't find they didn't say that. For sure. okay. Because I did read that they also are intelligent enough to change their prey, their their hunting tactics based on the prey. So for instance, it says, for instance, if it's if it's stinging a wasp, which has its own stinger and can fight back, it knows where it to will avoid. sting the wasp and then back away and let the venom do the work. So it's content to sting you and then like hide and wait for the venom to do its thing. Wow. And or then it comes out it and lasses you and beats you with its legs. It's 15 pairs. Or it can just get into the mud and do a, f- like just go at it with you. Yes, exactly. Wow. So it can attack you or it can, or I just like. So as you were reading this, did you find yourself starting to go, I kind of, these are pretty cool. They're, they're kind suddenly of, don't. I mean, no, I don't think they're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> they're awful. Let me be really <laughs> clear. <laughs> these things are awful. Yeah, these, these things, things are, are awful. Are, are, they're, they're, they're horrific. But it sounds awesome. But wait, there's more. Okay, still more. <laughs> yes. They are sensitive to light. So there was a weakness built in there. They do not like the light. It doesn't hurt them or anything. They don't like it. That's why when you pick up the, the old basket or old box from the basement, they yeah, go they skittering. Yeah, they book it. They book it. And see, now, because I knew you were going to do this, I had one thing about them that I had heard they were known for. What's that? So they have something... In common with the desert spider. You know what a desert spider does in Iraq? I don't. Desert spiders are known to pursue people. So if you are in like the Iraqi desert. My heart just sunk. They were known to, that they will chase you. They are not chasing you. They are looking to get into your shadow. Oh my God. (laughs) Because if they get into your shadow, they're out of the sun. Oh my God. Apparently, house centipedes are known to do the same for people in long coats and skirts. So if they're if they're exposed, they will run toward the darker thing. If it's if they're out in the sun, apparently it's very similar. Oh, did I'm sorry? Did I startle you? You startled me too. Let me hide up your pant leg. Yes, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the approach. That's socially acceptable to oh, a house centipede. God, where else are they going to go? I don't know. I did the, oh, um, by the way, desert spiders are like giant. They're huge. Are they? They're like the size of a hand. <laughs> they chase you. <laughs> I generally don't have a problem with spiders. Yeah, I, but if they were chasing after you in the desert, I'm you would. I'm sure if sure. one was chasing after my shadow, yeah. uh, it would have a problem. Yeah. I've always liked spiders and snakes. They don't bother me. Hmm. My oldest child does not like spiders at all and has been terrified of them for a very long time. But I still remember one time when they were eight and they came up to the house and they said, hey, dad, look what I found. And they were holding a snake. Yeah. And this was a child that would cry if they saw a spider. But had caught their own snake. I yeah. just thought that was a little ironic. Pick your poison. Exactly. And the last fun fact mm. about the house centipede, because there is still more. Yeah. They have an ability. They stridulate. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right. Stridulate. Okay. Stridulate is where they rub parts of their body together to produce noise. The most... Uh, like a cricket. Exactly. They're okay. Very much like a cricket. They have the ability to make a noise with their body and what do they do this for? I have no idea. Oh, is that like to call a mate? I, well, if you think about it, they're they're a, they're an animal, right? And that's got to be a process. So for animals, them. the mating, yeah, it's got to be crazy. <laughs> I don't want to go there. I, I, you know, yeah. In insects so stri- and bugs, and yeah. yeah, they all have weird mating things. But they if do. you think about it as an as an insect. Its drive is going to be eat and reproduce. Right. Yeah. Right. Not That's room like, for too much more. Exactly. It's eat, reproduce. So stridulate. I can't imagine making the noise is good for hunting. I wouldn't think so, unless, yeah, unless they were pack hunters. Yeah. Maybe I, drive some sort of communication direction. way. But I could certainly see it being part of mating. For sure. Yeah. So it must be related to. But either way, they can make a noise. Which, if you're trying to design a monster based on one, pretty 
Yeah. Pretty cool for monsters are scary. Exactly. That's what I was thinking as I was reading the article. I'm like, ooh, stridulation. Yeah. So those are that's a house centipede in in real in the real world. Yeah. So let's talk about a house centipede in Estrock. Um, I think our first step has to be deciding what challenge rating we want for our house centipede. Now we're going to be able to do a smaller version, maybe even a larger version, but let's let's focus on our like primary our primary house centipede, which you came up with a name that you liked. You 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 go ahead and announce. Well, I mean, your I name. just I. What did I call it? The Slither Shadow. The Slither Shadow. Because it's, it's moving around. It certainly works for me. It slithers <clears throat> and did, it's in the dark. What is it? I did I did take note that it's part of its scientific name was the Scudagera. Scudagera. Yeah. And that is a combination of two Latin words. So it's a Scudagera blah. Whatever the second part is, I wasn't as interested. In, because a Scudagera means to bear and shield. Which is like cool. And also I thought Scudagera sounds and i'm probably mispronouncing it because i don't speak latin so it's probably sure. scoot, you know whatever but scudagera kind of also sounds like it's moving yeah but it also kind of fits in the whole esterok sound vibe it seems like i, I don't know i like scudagera but i okay. also you know the slither shadow was just a, like i said what i said it was like a place filler but i don't know i'm fine with slither shadow too i'm gonna stick with slither slither shadow just for now because i won't remember scudagera in two minutes while we're talking about okay stuff. fair enough so it's interchangeable. <laughs> exactly. So again, as with all names, you reserve note. the right to change them. Yeah. So challenge rating. How tough should these be? Who should these be threatening to? I mean, at, we had in new, the current in, in. We came at these things thinking think for like, like yeah, we were originally a, a low a We low, somehow got here at the level low level first, but I kind of like the idea of it being. So if we're going to use five E terms, if we're going to use five E characters usually get really cool. You get something very cool at level three. So what mm -hmm. would be the challenge rating if we wanted them to finally be able to use their cool stuff on this thing? Well, see, the nice thing about cha uh, the challenge rating of a monster is that you want... So for instance, a challenge rating three monster is supposed to be sufficient for facing off against, what, four level three characters. Okay. I know that personally when I design encounters, I don't like throwing solo monsters. They tend to get ganged up on and get beaten very easily. And at okay. low levels, it's hard to justify things like legendary actions. Right. I could okay. see justifying lair actions. However, if you do shoot for a lower CR, that gives you the wonderful ability to throw lots of them at people. Yeah. So, and then you could have stridulation going on from one end of the cave, the other end of the cave, the other exactly. end of the cave. And they're You're surrounded by... Yeah, it's the, it's the velociraptor. <laughs> you know. Let it go. Yeah. So I was thinking we could shoot for somewhere between one half or one. Okay. If you had to pick between those two, what would you pick? One. One? All yeah. right. Okay. According to Paul Hughes's blog of holding article where he breaks down the, does the statistical analysis of the monster manual, a CR1 monster should have an AC of around 13. And all of these numbers, remember, they can dial up or down and affect other things that dial up and down with them. Mm -hmm. But there, you have flexibility. But these are the general stat, uh, stats. Okay. So a CR1 monster should have an AC of around 13. It should have a hit points around 30. It should have um, an attack bonus of about four. And it should do about eight points of damage. Its save DC for any of its abilities should be around 11, and it should have a bonus to its saving throws, if it has any saving throws, of about plus three. Now, that's from the Blog of Holding article. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to... There's a couple of those elements that he breaks out a little bit in his Level Up 5e book. All right. So, AC of 13, hit points of about 30... He gives it a proficiency bonus of plus two, which makes sense for the level. An ability bonus of plus two. One attack per round. That was the, sort of the information that I really wanted, was how many attacks per round. Mm -hmm. It gets one attack. Yeah. Um, lots of monsters, I mean, almost immediately, once you get past first level, they start having more two or more attacks. Okay. Does about, you know, in, our, in level up 5e, he does 10 damage per round. So the level up 5e monsters hit a little bit harder which again, I don't object to, especially if we're designing a world that is supposed to be exceptionally dangerous. A world that was so dangerous that the long extinct race of giant whatevers that used to rule it themselves stayed off the surface and stayed on the tops of their superstructures. Right. So even the giants didn't like Slither Shadows. 
Right, right, and and whatever else was down there, and or larger slithers, larger slither yeah. shadows. Yeah, and then uh, has two DCs, a DC of twelve and worth two hundred XP, which is just again based on the level. Right. Given that, let's talk a little bit about our monster AC of thirteen. We can plus or minus, according to Paul Hughes' blog of holding blog, we can up or down this up to three based on the monster concept. Now. I personally think this monster should have a higher AC than that. Well, as soon as you said it, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, what was your thought? Just higher, but no, nothing specific. It's it's, it's fast. That's exactly what yeah, I was it's thinking. Moving. It's so fast. It's, it's, it's zipping all over the place. It's got rogue AC. Yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's got evasion. Yeah. I'm fine with the number of hit points, but I could also see us decreasing them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's got a squish. Well, if he's going to be harder to hit. Harder to hit. That means you has, your hits have to count for more. Exactly. And it's know. a squishy bug. Yeah. It's the kind of bug that it's fast because it stays away from you because if you catch it, you can hurt it bad. Right. Yep. So if we do that, so we would raise its AC, lower its hit points a little bit, give it an attack of plus four. Uh, what kind of attacks do you see this thing having? Well, obviously a grapple of some sort. It's going to, right. It's going to have some sort of, I don't want to call them tentacles. They're, they're legs. So yeah. it'd be a slam. Yeah. It'd be a slam or a grab attack with its legs. Mm-hmm. And then a DC, a save DC to be grappled, I would think. Right, yeah. Yeah. So that so what we're looking at is a monster that attacks you with a slam. Mm-hmm. You have a saving throw, a saving throw of around 11. Okay. Based on this the stats. Yeah. To avoid being grappled. If you are grappled, I would say that would tie to a secondary attack. Because wouldn't that make sense if that's when it stings you? Right. It mandel mandel bites you. <laughs> mandel mandel, mandel bites. bites that? Yeah, mandel bites. Yeah. <laughs> um so it jumps on you, hits you, you fail your DC, you are grappled. Yep. Doesn't affect anything but movement. It can force you to move in one way or another. You can fight it, you can fight you, and then it gets So I, is it so this one, so okay, never mind. So I'm thinking at this level, grapple is fine, but if we want to make a more advanced one, then that one could get restrained. What I want to look into as we concrete this down is I want to look into whether or not it should have advantage attacking a grappled opponent. If that's too yeah. strong for first level. Yeah. I, so I would. what I would do, again, just trying to figure this out and learn it for the first time, I just look at a whole bunch of other first level creatures and find any that do grappling stuff. Well, could we do it? You know, it has advantage attacking you while it's grappling you, but everyone else has advantage on it while it's grappling you. You could do that. You could do a trade-off. But is that a balance? Because, again, if people are teaming up on it, then they can't all have advantage. Right. Next person in initiative order gets advantage. Is that allowed? I'm I'm not sure. We'll have to look into that one. I don't think it's within the confines of the rules to randomly assign advantage based on something arbitrary like next person in initiative order. Does that make sense? I mean, like it could be like someone's yeah. flanking. Yes, anyone, but then anyone can get that. If it's just like, well, you know, well then we Aragorn the- came after Frodo in the initiative order, so Aragorn always gets uh, initiative is less. Okay, so then it could actually just be like a flanking advantage, like normal, but then they would just have it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's what the learning part that's is. That's what the learning part is, right? Yeah, and the debating. And this, we and this figured is, it out. So. I, so one of the things I want to do is I want to give this thing something cool. Okay, so we've got it's going to obviously do um, bludgeoning damage for the grab or the mm-hmm. slam. Mm-hmm. It's going to do poison damage for the bite. There should probably be something. Shadows are a first level monster, okay. and they drain strength. They're one of the most deadly first level monsters out there, mm-hmm. and they can kill you by draining your strength. You literally lower your strength score. So I have to keep reminding myself of that. Because I'm sitting here thinking, oh, if it stings you, should there be a save against uh, a paralyze effect? Right. You know what I mean? Should they sting you, paralyze you, and then as a DM, what you would do is you would then have it move on to another target to try to take down a bunch of people before doing things. Um, And it would allow you to save every round against the paralysis. Okay. Yeah. So grapple, poison damage save for paralysis so this is its fancy stuff but normally is it just going to have like a slash or it's i think it's normal so the slam it's battering with that's all it's doing okay yeah i think it's i think it's so slam every time grapple optional exactly okay and then i want to give it a bonus action i think everything should have a cool bonus action right maybe that's over designing which i think is something 
as novices that were going into this, we could very easily fall in the trap of over-designing stuff. Sure. Like, not everything needs to be super complicated. An ogre is just there to hit you. But still, does it hurt to start out maybe giving it something cool? Now, I think bonus action, either a bonus action or a reaction. And I want to, I'm thinking something movement-based. Because that's the whole yeah. thing, right? Well, that's we were talking the, about can it move in shadows? Yeah. Can, can it, it essentially misty step? From, can it misty step? So can we have something? So do you think that should be a reaction or it should be a bonus action? Bonus it, action, I think. Yeah? Um, the argument for bonus action is it can do it every round. The argument for reaction... So what would, would be, be the reaction trigger? Some sort of an attack. So as a reaction to an attack, it can disengage and... Disengage and like try to avoid the attack. So that's like... So for instance, if you think about it narratively... This is the effect of it. It jumps on the it jumps on the wizard and it's grappling the wizard and biting it. The mm-hmm. fighter comes up and tries to scare it away with the sword by attacking it on the wizard and then it uses its ability to go out of the way real quick before the the fighter can hit it. Okay. As just again a yeah. way of driving them off. That would be the reaction version. The bonus action would be more of an offensive. So the okay. bonus action is going to be offensive. The reaction is going to be defensive. There, I just finally figured out how to... There you go. Well, well given the that. CR level, then it needs to be um, a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so, I would think. Because we don't we don't want it to manage to beat everyone up. Right. You know. Um, okay, so then what is the reaction? Well, I think the reaction would be some sort of a disengage. Okay. Like it can... If we wanted to be really mean... Yeah. As a, as a designer, your reaction could be something like it scuttles around to the other side of its grappled target. It's got a reaction. If it's grappling someone and it is attacked by another character, it can use its reaction to scuttle around the other side and redirect the attack to its grappled opponent. <laughs> That's mean. I like it, though. That's mean. That's like it the fighter mean. goes to, to hit the, the slither shadow off the wizard and the slither shadow uses its reaction and you hit the wizard instead. And then your wizard's dead. <laughs> and then your wizard's dead because they're sure. level one. Yes. And they just got hit by the barbarian with great weapon master because they took the human variant and took a feat. Right. Yeah. But they could have hit it if it was 10 feet away with polar. Yeah, they could. Good for you. So I do like that, though. I do, too. It is a dangerous world. Esterok is a very dangerous It is place. a dangerous world. These <laughs> things could easily kill a commoner. Right. That's good. We want the commoners to die easy. So that can be a reaction every time it gets attacked? That's Well, I mean, once per round. Once per round. You get yeah. one reaction per round. Is there something smaller than a legendary? Like a way to limit it? Well, no, because... <laughs> no. Yeah, because if it's a wizard... Well, I mean, that's just that's just a risk a wizard takes anyway. That's a risk a warlock, a sorcerer mm-hmm. takes. And if they're the, the ones... Squishy, low-level spellcasters, right. Right. And you're still the DM. You still have the choice as to whether or not make them have him take the reaction. Exactly. As far as some narrative things, we could do some really cool stuff with Egglang. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I love that we both immediately yeah, was like, had that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the other thing I want to add, and again, for the monsters thing, is some kind of bioluminescence because it's always creepy. Yes. It's got to have something. Well, because it's got to be touched in some way by Iliaster. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking. It could blend in with veins of Iliaster. Like that's mm. what it developed over time when you went looking for it. Maybe that's you, what gives it its teleporting ability or whatever. Yeah, maybe that's what gives it the ability the to... The slight touch of magic comes from living on this world. Yeah. Yeah. A bioluminescence. I love the idea of it um, stridulating. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you know when you're approaching a Slither Shadows rail? You hear the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the distance. The sound of stridulation. Yes. The fourth pillar of play, now brought to you by wannabe Foley artists and yeah. game designers. Yeah. And um, ASMR, if that's how you want to handle yeah. it. Well, the Slither Shadow. It's coming. It's coming. Here comes the, Here comes slither, the slither Shadow. And that's enough of that. Yeah, I could have done without again. that. That'll be cut. Was that what you said? I could have done without that? I could have done without that, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's beautiful. We should keep it. <laughs> okay, we'll keep it. <laughs> All right. What that gives us is, very quickly, yep. and for those of you listening at home... That's the first time we've gone through the stats, and it's the first time we've discussed its abilities. Yes. And that's how long it took us. It took us, what, five, six minutes? Now, of course, this is like a very easy, low-level monster. Right. It's not a complicated thing that we're talking about. But we have a general gist of what we want to do as far as stats. And we can sit down now, and we can hammer those out much more specifically. But we know that our Slither Shadow is going to have an AC of probably probably 15? Yeah. 15 15 or 16? Yep. It's going to have probably 20 or less hit points. Mm -hmm. It's going to have a plus four to attack thereabouts and do about 10 points of damage. That's going to be 
over its two attacks because that's per round. Right. So it can't do two attacks in a round anyway. So that means its slam is going to be 10. It means its bite is going to be 10 thereabouts. Now, one of the things I don't know about game design, I don't know how game designers do this, is when they say that'll be 10 points of damage, 1d6 plus 3 or whatever. I don't know how they determine how many of what type of dice go into that. I have a calculator website that I can pull up that I can put in like 4d8 plus 12, and it will tell me the average. And I can adjust that until I get the number I want. But I don't know if there's a rule for what kind of dice you should be picking based on the CR of the monster. That's something I would like to research in between so this episode and our next. So that's the next episode homework. Yeah, our next episode homework. So how, do, how do game designers choose which dice for a monster's attack? Okay. Yeah. It's probably based on size. Hit dice are based on size. Right. So large monsters a D10, medium monsters a D8, etc. I think. I might be having those wrong, but I can check them. Yeah. Uh, so our monster will then do... A grapple attack, there will be a save of around 11 to avoid it. If you fail, the next round it can attack you for a poison attack, which there's a save for paralysis. It then has a reaction that it can do to avoid being hit that can redirect an attack onto a grappled opponent. Mm -hmm. This is nasty. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, you can see why things are playtested. Because when you're summarizing, I'm going, oh... When we were doing it in parts, it didn't seem terrible. <laughs> you lay it all out there. Now you're like, oh. And it's almost as bad as finding one under an old laundry hamper in the, ba- almost, in the basement. Almost. Almost as bad. bad. Not, yeah. And, yeah. okay, medium, size of a human. Mm-hmm. Small, size of a halfling. Tiny, size of a fairy. No, that's for my vicious mocker. Oh, your vicious mocker. <laughs> okay. the size of a fairy. It's another monster I throw out there. Yeah, that's, that goes into your idea bag, your yeah, vicious exactly. mocker. The vicious mocker. How big should it be? Should it be dog-sized? Should it be I mean, ultimately, sized? ultimately, does that matter? Yes, for okay. hit dice. Oh, for hit dice it does, that's right. Um, I like, well, then how do you get the, the damage we were talking about? What hit dice does that? Well, that's what I don't know. I, I, I imagine that if you make this a small monster, you could make, I would say it's going to have to be small or tiny. Okay, then like dog-sized. Dog size, so dog size. So what we should do is we should look in the monster manual for how big a dog is. Yeah. And I don't have that in front of me right now. Right. But we'll add it to the homework for next week. Yeah. Okay. Josh. Yeah. I think we built a monster. Yeah, that was actually uh, with very little preparation, just to be clear. Yeah. We did Um, not pre-prep that. We we, talked about... And I think it sounds like... (laughs) House centipedes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really uh, discuss it. uh, We don't discuss things really in advance. Right. Um, We have a general idea to make sure that we don't tangent too much and meander too much. But no, we did it. Okay. So that's... I mean... I'm very proud of us. 90% so far. Yeah. uh, Done. Um, So I think it's just sitting down and nailing out some exact numbers. Yeah, just details. And some math and then formatting a stat block. Like literally ironing it out. Figuratively, literally. (laughs) Yes, figuratively, literally ironing it yeah, out. Yeah, just some details. And yeah. building a stat block, which yeah. then we can, we'll throw up on our social media accounts Excellent. for people to take a look at. Yeah, see what they think. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Well, if you happen to take a look at the Slither Shadow uh, stat block, we will go through it in detail in our next episode, and we'll right. break down the actual numbers. So will we, we'll have it finalized. By we will have it one. finalized. That one we will take the time to finalize. Yeah, we'll, we'll finalize that one and discuss this. I figure we can do that for any monster. You sure. Know, we iron do out this the part, actual numbers. Iron out, then come in and finalize. And okay. it will be, we will, we will premiere the Slither Shadow in our next episode, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much to everyone who joined us today. Remember that the fourth pillar of play is a part of the Night Shift Radio group and we are so happy that you've joined us with us to create and uh, explore some new and exciting adventures and please don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast listener and you can find us at fourthpillarofplay.com or uh, on our social media accounts which are linked on our website yeah that's everything that sounds great thanks for coming by guys all right have a good one (laughs) yep bye